This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank and their Smart Start Bank account for 11 to 15-year-olds. When I was growing up, my parents would always tell us that money didn't grow on trees and if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. But to be honest, I never really understood what these old sayings meant or what they were trying to teach me. And I think like with lots of life skills, these things are just so much easier to learn from a young age. And this is definitely something I think about now with my own children. And I can see it in my niece because since she got her Lloyds Bank Smart Start account, she has become somewhat of a saving superstar. She's already learning how to manage her money and learning these habits, which are going to make her adult life so much easier. She's also so excited about using it too, which is brilliant. They get their own card, they get a savings account and a spending account. It's just such a good idea and something that you can do as a parent that's going to help them flourish in the future. It's so clever. It's so good for their confidence. And it's just something that I wish genuinely had been around when I was that age. I think as parents, we all know we have a lot of plates in the air. (laughs) And even with the best intentions, we just don't have the time to teach our children everything that we'd like to. And sometimes that means important conversations get rushed or brushed over. So I really am excited to be working with Lloyd's on this campaign because it's all focused on building financial confidence in children. To be eligible, parents and guardians need to have an existing Club Lloyd's current account and be registered for internet banking. To find out more, head to lloydsbank.com forward slash smart start. Thank you very much to Lloyd's Bank. Hi everyone, how are you? I hope you're all having a lovely week and if you're listening in the UK, I hope you had a brilliant bank holiday. Today's episode is a really interesting one. Jessie, otherwise known as the glucose goddess, is so eloquent and intelligent. I loved hearing the story of how she got to where she is today, and I say it right at the beginning of the introduction, but I do think it's very interesting to speak to people when when they're in the middle of it all. Obviously, it's brilliant to speak to people at any stage in their journey, but I did find it particularly interesting, and I hope you do too. I love that she's obviously very passionate about food and her ethos is not about deprivation in any form. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and let us know what you think. Before we get into it, I have another podcast recommendation. It's another episode from the Liz Earl Wellbeing Show. Liz is an author, a hugely successful entrepreneur, and a general well-being guru. Her podcast is all about health and well-being and helping us to have a better second half. Liz's mission is to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and well-being today. An episode I wanted to flag was with Prue Leith, where she talks about the work that she's been doing to improve cooking in schools and hospitals, which I found very interesting. I spent quite a lot of time in hospital when I was pregnant with my first baby and the food was really shocking. I was really quite ill at the time and being served a big old plain baked potato with nothing else to go with it didn't feel like it was going to do anything to help me feel better. So I really enjoyed this one from a personal point of view, found it really interesting discussion and I thought you might like it too. You can find the Liz Earl Wellbeing Show wherever you listen to your podcasts so definitely check it out. That's all from me. And I wanted to say a big thank you to Lloyds Bank for sponsoring us. And now let's get into today's episode. 
My guest today is Jessie Inchalsby. Jessie is a French biochemist, best-selling author, and founder of the Glucose Goddess Movement. She's helped millions of people improve their health by making cutting-edge science accessible. Her whole philosophy is one that focuses on the idea of adding things to your life and not taking away. She's very clear that she doesn't advocate a certain type of diet. Her whole focus is on the science, and that actually the biggest benefit can be found in changing the order in which we eat. Her book, The Glucose Revolution, is a number one international bestseller and has been translated into 40 languages. She holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics from King's College London and a master's degree in biochemistry from Georgetown University. Jessie has said she didn't set out to change the world. Her whole story is a very personal one based on her own journey with her mental health following a life-changing accident at the age of 19. Welcome, Jessie. Thank you so much. Jessie, what an unbelievable few years you've had. So much has happened and it's so exciting to speak to someone when they're in the middle of it all. Did you ever (laughs) imagine any of this happening? It's strange. I think part of me never imagined this happening and so I pinch myself every day and then the other part of me feels very comfortable with it all happening I have a bit of both going on, I think. Yeah. It feels right, but it's still, you know, shocking. Yeah. But also it feels right. (laughs) Beyond your wildest dreams almost. Completely. And I don't think I've even processed everything yet because it's been so fast. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in 10 years I'll be like, now I realize what happened. (laughs) This is Desert Island Dishes, where we celebrate all food in its various forms and what it means to us and the stories behind the food as much as the food itself. It obviously plays a very important part in the work that you do from a scientific approach. But I wondered, what does food mean to you personally? Oh, wow. You know, it means joy, but it also means health. It means connection. It's, to me, a vehicle for a lot of things. It holds a lot of meaning and a lot of power. Mm. And so I used to be just on the side of enjoying food for its flavor, its taste, its social component. But then I realized, oh, the food I'm eating is impacting how I feel, my happiness. But long term, not just while you're sitting down for a meal. It's impacting my health. It's impacting my ability to go after my dreams. I realize that it's much more powerful than I thought. Mm. You were born in the south of France. I want to get straight into the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Okay, so I don't know how to say this in English. It's it's very thin veal steaks, like very thin that you kind of hit and they become super thin. What do you call them? An escallop. Escallop. Okay, mm. you can say that word in English. Great. I was like, escallop de veau. I didn't know yeah. how to say it. It's not, I mean, it's that not sounds, scallops. Sounds much more beautiful when you say it, Jesse. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. So veal escallops with, so cooked in a pan with um, lemon and heavy cream. Mm. So like really creamy deliciousness. And then they came with tiny little diced potatoes, also cooked in a pan with a lot of butter. And I was super lucky as I was growing up. My mother didn't work. And so every day at lunchtime, my sister and I came back home and ate lunch at home. And in France, you have an hour and a half for lunch, which is enough. And we lived five minutes away from the school. So I would come back. And usually on Thursdays, we had this dish. And to me, it was the one I was looking the most forward to. And then after eating, I would take some baguette and sauce the veal pan, mm, just so good. I can still taste it, you know, and you the the cream's slightly caramelized, so you had a little bit of burnt in there, but also just super delicious, rich, creamy sauce. 
and the potatoes. Yeah, Ooh. that that was good stuff. Jessie, that sounds yeah. amazing. I can't believe you got to come home from school and have that in the middle of the it's day. It's insane. It's insane. I didn't realize also, you know, how lucky I was. Yeah. But yeah. So is that standard in France? Not that everyone would have something so delicious, but no, that you come home. I mean, most moms work. Okay. No, no, I was very lucky that my mom didn't work. So um, other people were back at school having a packed lunch? Packed lunch is not a thing. You go to the canteen or you get a sandwich at a boulangerie somewhere, but packed okay. lunch isn't really a thing. It's not a thing. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know the philosophy behind your work, it's a science-based approach to the way that we eat. And what struck me is that one of the changes you suggest is to do with the order in which mm-hmm. we eat food. But actually, that's a very French way of eating, to begin by eating vegetables. Is that something that you grew up doing without even really thinking about it? Interestingly, no, because this cultural habit of having raw veggies at the beginning of a meal has been lost. You know, my Mm. grandparents used to do it more, but then my parents' generation just stopped. In Italy, you still have the habit of the antipasti at the beginning of a meal, which is vegetable-based. But I didn't grow up ever doing it. Like I knew of it, but at home we didn't do it, which is very interesting because I wonder at what point that got lost and people just stopped doing it. I was the prime example of eating when I was a child in a way that was completely not good for your glucose levels. Like (laughs) it was like the opposite. The glucose goddess has come a long way, guys. Um, So no, we didn't do that. No. Because I wondered, as you say it, it's also an Italian way of eating. I wonder if there's any correlation between people experiencing lower glucose spikes in Italy and whether that's just because that's part of their everyday life. Well, possibly. But I think what I find is that a lot of these hacks or habits that I've summarized from cutting edge science, we actually find them in ancestral wisdom, in Mm. cultures. People have been doing this for a very long time. Mm. And the veggies first thing, you know, also in in countries in the Middle East, they always start meals with herbs by the bunch, you know, or salads. So somehow humans have known for a long time that veggies first was a good idea. Mm. And I think around the Mediterranean, you do see, you know, better health outcomes, especially if you look at maybe our grandparents' generation. Now it's getting so globalized that people have lost these habits. And that's what I'm trying to bring back because they're incredibly powerful. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you look back in time, the way people ate, we we haven't made a correlation as to why they were doing that. It's just like a cultural thing that just, yeah, they they knew and it didn't get passed down as to why they were doing that. It's like, so another one of my hacks is having some vinegar before you eat something high in carbs. And in the 18th century, people gave vinegar teas to people with diabetes. Doctors did that. They didn't even know why it worked. Only today do we understand the impact of vinegar on glucose levels. But people were doing it. Mm. So I'm a big believer in just, you know, there's, there's some sort of wisdom floating around. People grab onto it. Who knows how they come across it, but um, it sticks. And we need to go back to a lot of those principles. Definitely. You came to the UK to study. And I think the story goes that your stepdad told you that if you don't know what you want to do in life, do the hardest thing that you can do. So you studied math. Yeah. I don't know what to think about that advice. Maybe it's actually pretty sage life <laughs> advice. What do you think? Listen, in that particular context of picking a field of study, I think it makes sense. I don't think you can apply it to anything. Okay. You know, like <laughs> if you're at home and you don't know what to do, do the hardest thing you can. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know, breaking down a wall. And I don't know. Like, it's not necessarily appropriate for all cases. But in this case, it was great. So yeah, I came to London, studied at King's College, um, studied math. And 
To be honest, I didn't really like it that much. Like I did it and I was good at it, but it was not a passion. I didn't really have a passion until I broke my back mm. and then was like, oh man, I need to figure out this health thing. Otherwise, I'm not going to live a very good life. Yeah. And that's when the passion started. But before that, I was just like having fun in London with my friends, kind of going to class, you know. You were being a normal university exactly, student. Exactly, exactly. I got a 2-1, not a first, everybody. So, you know. I, I think that's a badge of honor. That means you did it right, I think. Probably what your stepdad meant is if you have the ability to study maths, that is what you should do. What he meant, I think, was don't close any doors. Yeah. And in the case of an undergraduate degree, a degree in math, it's probably the one that keeps the most doors open. Because yeah. had I studied, you know, business or French or literature, then going into biochemistry would have been completely impossible. Yeah. So that's what he meant. He meant yeah. do something really hard so that you can then do whatever you want afterwards. I think that is good advice. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, crepes. Ooh. Yeah, so I grew up, again, very not glucose goddess. Um, from the moment I could eat until the end of high school, I had a Nutella crepe every morning for breakfast. Really? Yes. <laughs> the dream. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we used like pre-made mix. So you would buy, I think the brand is called like Francine or something. It's a very just classic French brand. And um, that's the first thing I learned to do. So you would mix the mix in a big bowl with milk, with melted butter. Whip it, whip it, whip it, whip it. You're supposed to let it rest for 12 hours, but I never did that. I just ate it straight away. So, you know, take the crepe pan out. It's this big, flat, round pan. Turn the fire on underneath. Put some butter on top until it bubbles. And then take a ladle and put some of the mix on there. And I just learned how to swish it really well. And then I learned how to flip the crepes. So that was a pretty cool party trick. Uh, but so, yeah, that's the breakfast I would make every morning. How old were you when you started doing that, do you think? I don't know. How old are you when you can start handling kitchen equipment by yourself? Eight? I mean, I was probably 15 <laughs> before I was trusted. But otherwise, my mom would make it for me. Um, so, yeah, Nutella crepes every morning for breakfast. And I felt horrible at 11 a.m. Little did I know that I was causing that with my breakfast. But it's a good memory. Mm. I must have eaten thousands of these crepes. It's wild when you think about it. Yeah, it's so crazy. <laughs> and so what is your go-to breakfast now? Oh, God. Pff, very far cry from crepes. Um, leftovers from the dinner before or something egg-based. Okay, so it's so, always savory. Yes, always savory. Because that's really important to keep your glucose level steady throughout the day and feel good. So when I'm traveling like today, the leftover thing is quite good. So this morning I had leftover Indian food from last night. Mm. Just warm it up and just, it's a, just have a regular meal, you know. Mm. And when I'm at home, I always will do something egg-based because I just love eggs. Mm. And I actually invented, and this is in my new book, The Glucose Goddess Method, an omelette recipe inspired by the Nutella crepes. Ooh, okay. What I mean is it's an omelette that is very, very thin and that you fold over like you would a crepe with feta and cherry tomatoes inside of it. Mm. So that's been my that Nutella really crepe good. replacement. Because I think people are still a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of a savory breakfast. I think they're on board with eggs and, you know, obviously in England, we love a English yeah. fry up. But in terms of having like leftover curry from the night before, I feel like that's something that's still a bit alien to people. And yet, For sure. it shouldn't be. And yet, that's the way people used to eat. Mm. So breakfast was not... The, the concept of having dessert for breakfast is new, you mm. know, in the I wonder. Past. I wonder when that started. Industrialization and big mm. food companies making breakfast products. Yeah. Um, but before that, we just have meat and potatoes for breakfast. There was no, like, special breakfast food. It was just mm. regular food. So, And I agree that, you know, the leftover dinner thing is a bit difficult for most people, but that's why... I 
made a lot of easy, savory breakfast recipes that'll slowly get you to a point where you feel more comfortable with that. Mm. But it's just a mindset. Once yeah. you start looking at breakfast the same as the other meals, yeah. it's not a peculiar thing. And and like in Japan, they totally. very much have savory breakfast. Totally. Like it's sort of a worldwide thing, isn't yeah. it? So I think it is important to go back to the beginning to understand how you've ended up where you are today. And in your case, as you already mentioned, you had a life-changing accident when you were 19 that would completely change the course of your life. Would you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So it was the summer after my second year at King's and I was on vacation with friends in Hawaii and uh, I jumped off a waterfall because I thought it would be a good idea. Because my friends were doing it and I wanted to be cool, let's be clear. How um, high was it? 10 meters, <gasps> 30 feet. Yeah. And wildly, not even touching a rock or anything, just touching the water a bit in the wrong angle on my tailbone, one of my vertebrae exploded under the mm. pressure. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I know. Because I guess from that height, it's like hitting concrete. It is. Yeah. And so very intense surgery, lots of physical pain. I have lots of metal in my back now, but... Physically, at that young age, you recover quite quickly. So in a matter of three months, I was back at the gym. But mentally, I started having a lot of issues. Depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I felt like a stranger in my own body. It was very odd, very scary. And so that's when I decided, okay, I need to figure out how my body works. I need to understand how to fix myself. Because I was really not okay. And I was very lost and I couldn't find help anywhere and then started my quest if you will to try to get back to just waking up and feeling okay mm. that, not even feeling amazing just feeling just normal. waking up and not feeling super weird about being alive not being super scared of being alone you know my my bar was super low <laughs> I was like I just want to feel okay being in my body mm. And so what I did to sort of try to go on this journey was I went to the U.S. and I studied biochemistry because I thought that was a good place to start. And then I worked in genetics for five years in Silicon Valley, again, because there was this belief that DNA was going to revolutionize personalized medicine and teach us so much about what to do to feel good. Mm. Turns out it's DNA is interesting, but it's not that helpful, especially if you're dealing with something that's mental health related. Okay. What can DNA help us to discover? Your DNA can tell you if you're at risk of a disease. So if you have a higher genetic risk of contracting XYZ chronic condition. In some cases, your DNA can tell you you have a very big problem right now, get it fixed. But in most cases, it just tells you you have a 10% higher chance of Alzheimer's disease, of breast cancer, of type 2 diabetes, etc. Mm. So it wasn't helping me at all. No. But while I was there, I had the opportunity to wear glucose monitor mm. as part of a pilot study. I don't have diabetes, but it was just out of interest and curiosity. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, you're always testing new products and technologies. And it's just kind of what you do there. And it changed my life because I was able to see, even for me as a person without diabetes, having a lot of spikes and dips in my glucose levels was making my mental health worse. Mm. And so I even got to a point where I could trigger these episodes of what later was called depersonalization, which is like really intense dissociation where you look at your hands and they don't feel like yours. Like that was what I was suffering with. I was able to trigger an episode of that with a big glucose spike. Wow. So then I thought, whoa, this 
is going to give me some answers. Mm. And there started my fascination for the topic. So I read all the studies I could on the topic of glucose in people without diabetes. I started putting in place these hacks that I've distilled from the science. And I started to feel better after almost a decade completely lost and in the dark. How quickly did you start to feel better? Days. Really? Yeah. Wow. And something I was curious about when I was reading your story, when you had those struggles during your recovery, what did traditional doctors say to you? Did they have any answers? I was never offered medication. Um, And I think also because I used to be such a people pleaser that... I found this therapist and in our sessions, I ended up sort of giving him therapy. I just really wanted him to like me or something, you know, I I don't know. I I didn't get any help. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't want to be a bother. Mm -hmm. And I never went as far as to see a psychiatrist, which probably if I had, they would have helped me with medication because I was suffering so, so much. But again, I wasn't, you couldn't tell. Like if you had met me then, no way would you have thought that I had any issue going on because I was just completely hiding it. So it was a bit of a weird situation. Mm. I didn't know how to ask for help. Nobody was magically going to tell me, you know, see the psychiatrist, take this medication that's going to help you. So I was just lost by myself. It must have been so scary. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I think we live in an age where we very much focus on this notion of an overnight success. And so often in that process, what we don't see is either years of hard work that it takes to get to that point or often a real hardship that people had to overcome. I think that's such a good point. And I've experienced this quite a bit in this past year. People are like, oh my God, like overnight you just blew up. I'm like, no, actually it's been, you know, 10 years that first of all, I had to go through this journey myself. And then after I started feeling better, Um, learning about the science and applying it to my life, I felt this really big surge of energy. And I was like, I need people to know about this. I wanted to share with the world. And so I started sharing with my friends, my colleagues, and on this Instagram account. And at the beginning, it's very lonely and you're all by yourself on your couch, posting these things, you're getting two likes and people around you think you're a little bit, you know, funny for doing this. And then of course, when you have 2 million followers, people are like, wow, such a good idea. Like, I love it. (laughs) But at the beginning, it's just you and your belief that this is important enough to communicate it. Mm. So yes, I agree with you. I think success is almost like an iceberg, isn't it? People Mm. see the tip above the water and assume that's all there is to it. And they don't see the huge mass that happens underneath the water. Mm -hmm. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Okay. So as I was thinking about this question of course you know many things popped in my mind but there's a dish that I tried last year in a small restaurant in Paris and I liked it so much that I ordered it five times oh my goodness in, <laughs> in one in one yes, sitting yes, oh yes, wow yes. okay so I think that wins the medal yeah so it was a crab and couscous little warm salad served in a crab shell and it was just so good I don't know how to tell you. And I instantly got completely addicted to it. And I think it was six of us at the, at the dinner table. And so it first comes and we're sh- all sharing it. And I'm eating a few tablespoons and I'm like, oh, this is so good. And so I order another one. And I'm like, nobody else is going to eat it. So I'm going to get it all to myself. The second one comes, everybody starts eating okay. it again. And so then I have to set a boundary. I'm like, guys, I'm going to order this again, but it's just for me. <laughs> so that was so good. But when I like something, as you can probably tell from the Nutella crepes and stuff, I will just keep 
coming back to it. I'm a total creature of habit. Is it the kind of thing that you would try to recreate or was it just so perfect in that moment no, you couldn't even? I, I don't really like dealing with crabs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a pretty lazy cook, so I, I need to do simple stuff. That's why all my recipes in my new book are six ingredients or less, just super simple. So no, I would never try to do that. Yeah, just no. keep it as a special occasion. Yeah, let the professionals do their job. Yeah, I'm just going to go and enjoy it. When you were talking just now about uh, wearing the glucose monitor and having that amazing realization that you'd found something that could really help... Was it like that? Was it like a proper light bulb moment like you hear people describing? I remember exactly where I was. Um, yes, I remember. So it was maybe two weeks into wearing the monitor and I felt this big wave of depersonalization come about and it kind of feels like intense brain fog plus weird anxiety. It's this weird combination of symptoms and you can feel it coming on. And I was like, here we go again. And because I had my glucose monitor, I scanned it sort of out of habit. I was scanning it every hour anyway. And there I saw one of the biggest spikes I had ever seen because I had had a donut for breakfast. And I was like, oh my God, is this related? Like, is what I'm eating influencing how my brain is feeling? And so, of course, it was just one small incident. So then I continued testing it. And it became very clear to me that if my glucose levels were steady, I didn't have any of these episodes during the day. So yeah, it was a light bulb moment. And were the people who were part of the study where they'd got you to wear the glucose monitor, was this of interest to them? Or were you, question. Were you um, sort of more interested in it even than they so were? So the study was just five people at my company were allowed to wear this glucose monitor for two weeks. It's a device that needs a prescription. So this was a okay. as part of a research study and a nurse came over to apply it to us. No, they didn't have this realization, any depth of realization. I think one guy ran a marathon during it and was like, oh, look, my glucose got really low. But that was the that was the extent of the insights that okay. the other people got. Yeah. But also at the beginning, I kept it to myself. So I didn't go back to my colleague research group and tell them what had happened. I was just still in the exploratory phase. I think the idea of food as medicine and the link between what we eat and our mental health are still not mainstream topics. Do you feel like this is the kind of thing that actually should be taught in schools? I think a lot of the stuff I talk about, I hope it'll be taught in schools one day. Because in my opinion, the things that I share from the science, they should exist at the same level as drink water, brush your teeth, wear sunscreen, eat your veggies first, have a savory breakfast. That's where I feel like we're operating. I feel like we're at a public health level. Mm. So yes, I hope all of this gets taught in schools. Absolutely. That would be amazing. Mm. Like it's so clever what you do because you break down these scientific papers into mm. a way that's easily digestible. But when you look at the the steps of what you're suggesting that we do, they're simple, easy things. It's not asking a lot of people. And yet what you're saying is, if you do these things, it could be completely transformative. So they are simple, yet nobody does them. Mm. So yes, they're simple and they're easy, but the real challenge is to give people enough reason to start. Yeah, And that's what I think is fascinating. And to me, this realization that, oh, these spikes are causing my mental health issues, that's what prompted me to start. And today my work is all about how do I get somebody 
who read my book on the other side of the world to decide to try a savory breakfast one day? How did I make that so easy that they actually take that first step? Because then it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah, you feel confident that if they did it for a day, they'd feel so much better. It would then just become habitual. Absolutely. And so now all of my work is about how do I make it? Easy, And that's why the second book came about, because after my first book, people asked me for even more help to actually do the hacks. And so I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other layers also for me to peel and unpack, but that's what I'm here for, to just make it easy enough for people to start. It's surprisingly simple. Mm-hmm. We're going to pause there and talk about the fourth Desert Island dish, and that is your favorite sandwich. Okay. So I think my favorite sandwich is a sort of sandwich um, that I have when I go to Berlin. I, I lived in Berlin for a summer when I was a student. And it's a Sudanese falafel sandwich Ooh. with halloumi and peanut sauce in Ooh. it. And it's served in a pizza, you know, it's so good. So that's the one that came to mind. Did you say yeah. Sudanese? Yes, yeah, Sudanese falafel. What makes it? I think it's the peanut sauce that makes okay. the Sudanese, yeah. Oh. And I've never been able to find a Sudanese falafel place anywhere else than in Berlin. Oh, Unfortunately, yes. Oh, that sounds so good. We've never yes. had that as an option, Ooh. a choice on desert island dishes. So that's a first. Nice. I'm going to have to hunt one down. <laughs> when you're wearing the glucose monitor and you had this light bulb moment, I think you've described it almost like feeling this huge discovery and being so excited to share it with the world in case it could help other people the way that it was helping you. But that must have felt quite daunting in a way. Well, no, because it was just me on my couch with my cat. I didn't know it was going to get to this scale. I was just excited to share it with the people around me. So looking back, when you're in it, you have no idea what's coming. For me, success, and I remember I, had, I made this diary just writing my project, and I was like, if I ever get 10,000 followers on Instagram, that's like my ultimate goal. And, to, you know, to me, that felt super big, mm. as it does when you have five followers. Um, so, no, I had no clue. It didn't feel daunting. I was just excited. And it, I just felt like I wanted to tell the people around me first about this. Mm. And then it just kind of grew. You were still working full-time when you began what would ultimately Mm -hmm. become the glucose goddess, but it it was slow progress to begin with. Like you've talked about building those early followers. It didn't happen overnight. No, no, no. And I had uh, made a pact with myself. I said, okay, for six months, I'm going to work on this Instagram one hour a day, no matter what happens, no matter how many followers I have, no matter what happens. And that was so important to getting this project off the ground. Because at the beginning, when you're in week three and you post something and you get four likes, I can tell you, I wanted to quit. I was like, why am I doing this? This is useless, nobody cares. But because I had (laughs) made that pact, I kept going and I I sort of removed the outcome question from it all. Yeah, And that's really what saved me because 10% of people think about an idea. 10% of those people actually do it. Of those 10%, 10% actually keep going. Like the funnel gets really, really small. The best investment you can make in something is just time. Just keep at it. And it's quite boring because people want the sort of overnight success thing. Yeah, that is not the answer we want, Jesse. That sounds really hard work. Just put this hashtag on your post and you're going to blow up. You've described yourself as being both very risk averse, but also very bullish in your determination, which I thought was quite an interesting combination. Mm-hmm. 
I think I have a lot of, uh, in French, we have this cool word, word called audace. It's like a mixture between uh, like recklessness and self and confidence. Just mm-hmm. I'll do stuff. I'll be like, yeah, of course I can do that, even though I've never done it before. Okay. So that's one part of my brain. And the other part of my brain is very risk averse. So I didn't quit my job nine months after having this idea until I had 10,000 followers and I had enough money for a year. Like I'm not actually reckless. I just have these moments where I really just believe that I can do things. And you, I mean, it must have taken a lot of self belief in in that beginning. I know you've said that you set yourself the goal of doing it every day, but you also must have really believed in what you were doing. You know, when you love something and when an idea picks you, your soul just kind of lights up. And I was just following that feeling. It was not, this project didn't come out of like an intellectual, oh, this would be good for my career if I did this. It was just like, I was so excited to get home from work and work on this in the evenings. And so you just follow what makes your soul light up. And I think that's a good indication that you should keep doing it. And it makes continuing quite easy Mm. because you're just excited. You know, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like, oh, this is my little passion project baby thing. Yeah. I guess in a way, it's a hard thing to replicate because what you did was just turn a complete passion project into something that meant so much to you and you kept working on that and then it's ultimately led to where you are today but you couldn't have just sat there and been like okay my five-year plan is I'm gonna do this this and this and I didn't know what was gonna come of it you know I was living in San Francisco at the time so there as soon as you have an idea everybody around you is like raise a million dollars and do a startup so that's kind of what you think you should be doing, regardless of the idea. (laughs) And so I kind of tried that. I found a co-founder and it turned out like I didn't want to be a tech CEO. Like I just couldn't find the energy for that. And I just felt like that's not the best use of my skills. I don't want to be managing a big team. I actually want to make content and teach myself. Mm. And so there's so many ups and downs throughout the whole journey. And then I thought I was going to stop a year later and then my agent found me. And so... It's not a straight line. It's just totally wild. But I think that's interesting as well because it's often finding what you don't want to do is as important as what you do want to do. So you'd found the arena that you were interested in and then it's figuring out what direction you actually want to take. Yep. I also had questions about Silicon Valley Mm because I feel like it's like this mythical place that we all hear so much about. But what was it actually like working there? Have you seen the show Silicon Valley? Yes. It's like that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally like like that. I love that show. Uh, yeah, and I was working in a really cool, really like hot startup, 23andMe, the genetics testing company. And so I got to experience all of that. And I was a French girl, fresh out of Washington, D.C., doing a master's. And I just really was so excited about the Silicon Valley experience. So I, would, I got my little bike and I would bike to the Caltrain every morning. And I was wearing heels because I thought it was going to be super cool to wear heels. You know, drinking beer with the engineers after work on the terrace. And I was just like, wow, I was living the dream. So it was really fun. It was amazing. And uh, I learned so, so, so much there. I think the main thing that I personally know about 23andMe is that they're using the DNA to solve unsolved murders. No, that's not true. Oh, Jesse. <laughs> I thought that is true. Isn't that how they caught the Golden State Killer? I don't think it was 23andMe. I okay. think it was like another um, a service. Okay. Another service. So 23andMe <laughs> has never handed over any data to okay. enforcement. Nothing, nothing. Okay. No, no, no. You didn't hear it here. No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. Hopefully they won't come after us and sue <laughs> no. us for that. <laughs> Something else that you said, which I thought was really interesting, was that whilst it was daunting to start and to keep going, your fear of failing 
was smaller than the fear of being 80 Girl, and looking back. I'm so impressed oh. with your research. <laughs> like, wow, very impressive. Bravo. Uh, yeah, exactly. So when I found this topic and I thought to myself, do I want to just keep it for myself and then like, heal myself? Or do I actually want to go and make this a project that's bigger than just me in my living room? Do I want to put this online? I was super scared because at the time, there were already a handful of companies talking about glucose. So I thought, this topic has already been covered. Everybody already knows about this. There's no space for me. Um, and I was really nervous. But then I did that equation in my head. I thought, is the fear of failing greater or smaller than the pain that would come if I just never went after this? Mm. And in that moment, I made the decision. And now I'm like, you know, those companies that I thought were so big, like half of them have shut down, like nobody knows about them. So it's it's wild to see how that decision really, really just changed everything. Mm. Also, the fear of failing, which I'm going to put in inverted commas, really, that's a fear of what other people are going to think. Yeah, I was scared of looking stupid. Yeah, for sure. I was scared of embarrassing myself. That feeling is so overwhelming. And I think it's like the number one thing that really does hold people back yeah. from trying something new. And it's a big fear. Mm. It's a big, big one. Mm. Yeah. But really, the majority of people are so worried about themselves and what they're doing. I don't think they are looking at other people making judgments. Well, now I'm on the quote-unquote other side, yeah. right? I have like this this big successful Instagram account and I realize... The people here, like if somebody new is doing something new, I'm going to be really excited and happy and going to try to help them. There's nobody's there just waiting for you to embarrass yourself no. to make fun of you. Nobody <laughs> cares, but also people are quite helpful and nice and supportive. So I think it's just a made up monster in our heads. Yeah, which we should not listen to. So I think people are going to find that very inspiring. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. Jesse, what's the dish you eat the most often? Parmesan. I know it's not a dish. Yeah, I like how that... <laughs> I like that we're calling that a dish. Okay, yep. For some strange reason, um, my mom always had a big Tupperware of grated Parmesan in the fridge. Like in France, you have the, you know, you have the cheesemonger and blah, blah, blah. So every week she would go to the cheesemonger and have them grate like a kilo of Parmesan and then just that would be in the Tupperware in the fridge. And we would put Parmesan on every single meal ever, where there was meat and broccoli, of course, pasta, but like anything. My sister also started making Parmesan crepes. Ooh. No, but we're like addicted to Parmesan <laughs> proper. I just eat Parmesan every day, actually. So yeah, that's the one. I think I've had like maybe 300 pounds of Parmesan. <laughs> I like that we've life. done the maths. <laughs> yeah, probably more to be honest. I mean, it does make everything better, doesn't it? It's so it? good. And yeah. now I know it's actually high in protein. So it's one of those good cheeses. Well, that's perfect. Could, <laughs> could Parmesan get any more brilliant? When you first started talking to publishers about your first book, I think you had around 20,000 followers, which is obviously a lot, but nothing compared to what you have now. Did you, and in turn, did they, the publisher, ever imagine the level of success? Like, obviously, when they take someone on, they they dream about that. But was that something that you thought was within sight? That's a tough one to answer because back then I was pitching them that I was going to have 50,000 followers soon. Okay. I never told them I'm going to have 2 million followers in a year. Is that the level of growth? Yeah. <gasps> well, no, let's see. So I'm at 2 million now. Nine months ago, I was at 1 million. 
And then I started the account four years ago. So it's been doubling every six months, basically. That's kind unbelievable. Of. Yeah. So yeah, basically they couldn't have predicted that. So no, but and there were these people around me, the publishers, my agent, like they really believed in it. And looking back, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I never thought of writing a book. It's an impossible question. I think the answer is no, nobody thought this would happen. We're all very happy it happened. Yeah. <laughs> But no, I, I, nobody told me, nobody predicted this. I mm. think everybody had a feeling this was going to be important work, but it's hard to predict. Mm. Your second book has just come out, which is very yes. exciting. But I was thinking that must be quite an intimidating thing, the hotly anticipated second album. Did you have any <laughs> different feelings writing this one than you did your first? Yes, it felt more fun. Um, it felt easier in a way and I feel so much more confident in the message and in knowing what people want that there's way less fear. My first book, I was like, I don't know if people are even going to buy it. It was complete white page. This one, people had asked me for it. Hmm. So the, the real challenge for the second book was to make something as good as I wanted it to be in such a short amount of time. And we succeeded, which is amazing. But I pulled so many pieces together from, you know, the new branding to the recipes to the study I did on 3,000 people who actually went through the method. I mean, everything was a huge challenge, uh, but a different type of challenge, you know. Um, so, no, less fear, more work, more people involved, and me having to wrangle many more teams around this project and really just lead them all to this finish line. Mm. Isn't it interesting how, I was just thinking when you were talking, if, for example, I had been the one to make this discovery about glucose, I feel like that is something that could have changed my life and I would have been very excited about it. But I would not have been the right person to talk about it. And yet it goes right back to the beginning when your stepdad told you <laughs> to yeah. study maths. You are the right person. I think ideas pick people. I think this idea picked me and I had a moment where I could decide, like, am I going to take this idea and give it life or am I not? And in that moment, I decided, you know, the, the pain of, of never, never doing it is bigger than the pain of failing. The idea and I made a deal. You know, and I do agree. I think I'm, I was the right person for this. And that's why the idea even came to me. I think if an idea comes to you, it's that you're probably in some respects one of the people who's right for the idea. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm. You know, I'm never going to have a random idea about football. Like I don't care about football. But the fact that this idea came to me was because something inside me was right to bring it to life. Mm. I don't know whether you're going to like this um, analogy. <laughs> yeah, But uh, I think Paul McCartney said oh, that yeah? songs came to him when yes. he was sleeping. And it's true. If a song came to me in the middle of the night, I, I would not be the right person for that song to come to you. <laughs> but I guess it's, you know, other people have talked about what you're yeah. expressing. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It feels like art in a way. Mm. You know, it's something that I couldn't control. It's something that came through me. It's something that I'm channeling and helping. But clearly this idea needed to come through. And so I was just like, okay, I'll do it. Bring it on. But I need some help, please. Yeah. And so the universe <laughs> gave me help, which is amazing. We're on to the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Roasted broccoli and cauliflower with tahini sauce. Oh, Super simple. Yum. Make sure the oven is really, really hot. So 220 Celsius, which I don't know how many Fahrenheit that is. Yeah. It's yeah. hot. <laughs> uh, but really, really hot. Almost the maximum that your oven can go to. And you, for veggies, cook them in some olive oil, cook them at this really high heat for like 15 minutes, and they're perfect. Tahini with some lemon 
sea salt, put that on the table, just can make pounds of it. It's delicious. Uh, yeah, it's an easy one. Would you serve a pudding, Jesse? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I would buy it though. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I would probably buy something chocolatey because I'm a big chocolate fan. So some nice, like rich, like praliné chocolate bars that I would just break in the middle of the table with some herbal tea. That's that's a good one. And do you get to throw many dinner parties? Yeah, actually, I yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Well, small. You know, I I think the ideal table size is five people because when you're five, you can have a single conversation. Yes, that's true. And one of my pet peeves is when you're at a dinner party and there's more than six people, you never all speak together at the same time. There's no unity, and that really annoys me. So mm. I try to keep it up to five people at home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. And round tables are much better than rectangular yeah, tables. Much better. My God. Especially if you get stuck next to a dud yeah. on a rectangle. It's a nightmare. On the corner. Yeah, you have a horrible time. <laughs> Ow, my stomach hurts. I got to go home. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I wondered, what is your most treasured cookbook? Anything by Ottolenghi. Mm. Yeah, I love his stuff. The King. Um, Yes, and actually, because I'm a big fan of roasted cauliflower, one of his recipes is roasted cauliflower with grapes, cheddar, parsley, and a honey mustard vinaigrette. It's so good. I've made that so many times. That sounds really Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And are you a cookbook reader? Do you follow lots of recipes or...? I kind of try to find recipes that I never have to read again. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in my new book, which has 100 recipes, my intention is that you do it once and you don't have to look at the recipe again because it's so simple and straightforward. I want people to pick up habits. I don't really want people to be dependent on external objects, instructions to get through their day. It's more the idea. Yes, however, there are a lot of wonderful people around me who love cookbooks and will spend six hours preparing an amazing meal. And I'm so thankful because I love eating their food, but I just don't have that kind of patience. But I think maybe, you know, throughout my life, I kind of have this vision that at some point I'm going to have a phase where I'm going to get really into like long, complicated cooking. Um, So maybe that'll come at some point. But for now, I'm like, I'm very simple, you know, roasted broccoli, assembling stuff. Parmesan. Your long cooking era is ahead of you. Yes, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) We're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Yeah, that was a tough one. You are allowed several courses. Honestly, I think it would be a combination of the ones I just mentioned. And there's also this chocolate cake. So I would probably do like the roasted roasted cauliflower and broccoli. And then I would do the veal escalope with the potatoes. Mm. And then there's this chocolate cake that I only ate once. And it only exists in this one little bakery in the southwest of France. And it's like mega, mega praline chocolate layers and this chocolate ganache on top. And it's so good. And the bakery is called... Fred de Lyon, I think. And I once even called them and I was like, hi, can I get this shipped to Paris? And they're like, nope. <laughs> so I think I would definitely get that cake as my last dessert. It's so delicious. We will track it down. <laughs> awesome. Jessie, thank you so much. Those were your desert island thank dishes. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and it really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can help bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow us on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again. 
again to Lloyds Bank, our sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.